From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Hundreds of people crowd the state capitol as lawmakers take up a ban on so-called assault weapons. Then, the U.S. Supreme Court hears oral arguments about a Colorado case. When do online posts cross the line into stalking? Do you have to wait until the person actually engages in violence before you do something about what is an objectively terrorizing threat? Criminalizing misunderstanding is especially dangerous in an age when so much communication occurs on social media. And in the 1960s, it was coined the toughest job you'll ever love. But over the years, the Peace Corps has had its ups and downs. Most countries overseas have had wonderful experiences with Peace Corps volunteers. It's us here in America who are forgetting that the Peace Corps exists. A new documentary by a Colorado filmmaker explores the Peace Corps' historical significance through the challenges of current day. Hi, I'm Veronica Penny, CPR's data reporter. Life in Colorado is changing. People are living through more wildfires, smoke pollution, and drought, and less reliable winter snowpack. And the science behind our changing climate is evolving in real time. As a data journalist, my job is to explain that science to you, so you have the tools to make informed decisions in your daily life. Support in-depth solutions-based climate reporting today at CPR.org climate. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. One of the most talked about bills at the State House this year failed in its first committee hearing in the early hours of the morning. It would have banned so-called assault weapons in Colorado. CPR's Benta Berkland was at that hearing. She joins me now. Hi, Benta. Hi, Chandra. Benta, the legislature is controlled by Democrats, and a lot of those lawmakers have said they wanted to do more to tighten up Colorado's gun laws. Why weren't they on board with this idea? Yeah, that's right. And in, in fact, this session, Democrats have already passed a number of stricter gun laws. For instance, they've instituted a three-day waiting period for purchases and increased the age to purchase any type of firearm to 21 years and up. But with this assault weapons ban, it always faced an uphill course. Some Democrats didn't want it to detract from passing other policies, knowing just how contentious this would be. And others questioned whether it would really have a meaningful impact. That's something I heard from Democratic Representative Mark Snyder. He's on the House committee, which heard this bill, and he voted against it. So I'm just wondering, even if this passes all the way through and gets signed by the governor, is it going to have a meaningful effect on the availability of guns when you can just go to Wyoming or any neighboring state and get all the weapons you want? Even Democratic leaders were pretty hands off with it. Ahead of the hearing, Democratic House Speaker Julie McCluskey said she was still undecided. She lives in Dillon and she represents a district in the Central Mountains. And she said people in that district, which includes six different counties, were either really supportive of a ban or really opposed to it. It is trying to balance those many voices and interests. It is not universal one way or the other. But in the end, McCluskey won't have to make up her mind at least this year because that bill failed. Was it a surprise that it couldn't get out of committee? It it really wasn't. Like I indicated, this had divided Democrats right from the start. It wasn't included in this package of gun measures Democrats unveiled as their priority this year. 
And many Democrats didn't want this bill to be introduced at all. Then once it was finally introduced, it languished for more than a month before being scheduled for its first hearing. And the assault weapons bans, the, the main sponsor here was Representative Elizabeth Epps. She's in her first year at the Capitol. She's from Denver. And even in her opening statements at this hearing, she acknowledged it didn't have the votes to pass the committee. And she was critical of her colleagues who oppose it. I've long said that Democrats weren't serious about a statewide ban on assault weapons. So if we fail, I was right. I want to be wrong. I want to be wrong. I'd like to be wrong today. And if not today, then next year, an election year, why not? Before the next event that forces us to consider this. Now, Epps did make a last-ditch effort to try to keep the bill alive by pretty much rewriting it so that instead of banning certain types of firearms, it would just ban one type of gun accessory, what's called a bump stock, that basically turns a semi-automatic weapon into an automatic weapon. But didn't that win over enough support? No, that didn't win over enough support. And one thing opponents noted is that bump stops are already banned federally, but it looks like the ban may get struck down by the courts. So, you know, why outlaw them in Colorado? Republican Representative Matt Soper sits on the Judiciary Committee, and he said he, he would definitely be glad to see the bill watered down, but certainly wasn't going to vote for it either way. To narrow the bill to something that's already banned under federal law, that's a victory. I'd rather see the bill killed. That would be a greater victory. And he kind of got that victory because that's what ultimately did happen. Opponents like Soper and Second Amendment advocates who came to testify said, look, assault weapon bans just don't deter criminals or solve the problem of gun violence and mass shootings. They feel like it ends up penalizing law-abiding citizens. Hmm. Were there a lot of supporters for the bill there? What did they think about it getting voted down? Yes, there were a lot of supporters, and they were very disappointed by the whole thing. Some of them blamed Democratic leaders for sending the bill to this committee instead of finding a panel where it would have had enough votes to get out of the panel and go to the full House floor. Because if that had happened, supporters believed it could have made it through the chamber given the wide margins Democrats have. One of the supporters I met with yesterday was Kelly Murphy. She said her family has been touched repeatedly by gun violence, and she believes Democrats in blue states like Colorado need to be passing these kinds of laws. And I think that they fully know that this would save lives, and they're just being scared. They're just scared. They're afraid of what a ban will do to their seat and their position, and I think that that's all that it's about. Murphy is with the grassroots group Moms Demand Action. They had a lot of people at this hearing, all wearing red, which really stood out in the crowd. What was the hearing like? I'm guessing there was a lot of people there. Yes, definitely. A lot of people. It went very long. So it started at 930 in the morning, which is unusual. Usually committee hearings start in the afternoon. And right at the outset, the committee chair said he was limiting public testimony to a total of 12 hours. Um, It did end up going on longer than that. More than 500 people signed up to testify. And the final vote in the committee didn't happen until one in the morning. Mm. So there was an overflow room, large screens broadcasting the hearing, which is done for for big committee hearings that are going to uh, bring a lot of people to the Capitol. 
I would say that emotions were really strong. So we saw lots of students at the Capitol to participate, either observing or testifying. Of course, gun rights supporters, including sheriffs who came out to oppose it. You know, veterans were testifying, medical professionals, parents. You know, people were really passionate. And throughout the day, I saw plenty of tears. And people on both sides were at times angry. And we just heard some really sad and tragic stories about gun violence and deaths of friends and loved ones. So I think it was a draining day. Representative Epps did thank all of those people for sharing such personal stories. And she praised them for being willing to come to the Capitol and talk about their experiences. I do want to note, though, that it was generally a respectful discussion. Benta, you mentioned a couple of times that Democrats are passing some pretty sweeping gun bills this year. But it feels like none of them have attracted quite the same attention as this effort to ban assault weapons. Any thoughts on why? Well, none of those other bills explicitly were banning a type of firearm. So lawmakers passed, like I mentioned earlier, a three-day waiting period, um, increase the purchase age. There's also a bill to expand who can request an extreme risk protection order to temporarily remove someone's firearms. Uh, There's also a measure to make it easier to sue gun manufacturers. And those were consequential. They brought people to the Capitol for sure. But because this bill was a ban on a lot of different types of weapons, um, and in a way it was sweeping, for grassroots supporters, this was the one they were most strongly opposed to. And I talked to Republican House Minority Leader Mike Lynch, and he and other Republicans said they were relieved that there was a limit to how far Democrats who hold the majority would go on this issue. And of the assault weapons ban, Lynch said, quote, I think maybe this is a bridge too far, finally. Benta, thank you. Thanks. That was CPR Public Affairs reporter Benta Berklin talking about the proposed assault weapons ban that was voted down at the state legislature early this morning. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. On the latest episode of My Story So Far, the new storytelling podcast from CPR, hear personal stories from students and educators in Aurora, Colorado. We pull up to the doje, and I felt like Jaden Smith version 2 in the making. And I'm like, woo, I'm about to meet my Jackie Chan. Wax on, wax off. And so I get my white belt, I get my white gi, and I suit up like this is the Avengers protocol for my first class. Uh, (laughs) My story so far. Find it wherever you get podcasts. State law defines stalking, but Colorado's definition might just clash with the First Amendment. That's what the U.S. Supreme Court is parsing out after oral arguments Wednesday. The case involves a singer-songwriter who got hundreds of thousands of messages from an obsessed man. That man served prison time and appealed his 2016 conviction on the grounds of free speech. CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry is keeping us in the loop. She joined Ryan Warner from Washington. Allison, I suppose the big question is, did the justices seem to think Colorado's stalking law is constitutional? You know, Ryan, I'm not an expert tea reader of SCOTUS oral arguments, but it did seem like a simple majority of the justices had some issue with the way this Colorado man, Billy Raymond Counterman, was convicted under state statute. And I guess I just wouldn't be shocked if they in some way raised the standard 
of what it takes for people to be convicted of so-called threatening speech. I don't think every case has bedfellows of Justice Roberts and Justice Sotomayor, but that was the case here. You know, in short, I think Colorado's standard for criminal convictions could very likely change. Representing the state of Colorado was our attorney general, Phil Weiser. What was his argument? A.G. Weiser took a somewhat simple stance that in the course of American history, true threats have always been prosecuted without protection of the First Amendment. And now this defendant, Mr. Counterman, is seeking to impose some quote unquote intent element into this case that shouldn't be required as a standard for conviction. Weiser talked at length to the justices about victims in these cases and also victims of violence overall and how they often start with a simple threatening message. A delusional individual who is a stalker will often say, I believed we were in a relationship. I thought what I was saying was benign and it's possible they could believe that and yet once they're really rebuffed, they can then turn violent, which means the following. Do you have to wait until the person actually engages in violence before you do something about what is an objectively terrorizing threat? And this is crucial for the law to be able to protect. What did Counterman's attorney say? John Elwood represented Counterman, and his argument is basically that Counterman never intended for his speech, all his thousands of messages to the singer-songwriter Coles Whalen, to be threatening or harmful. Mr. Elwood has said that he had a mental illness and wasn't aware the messages were having a negative effect on the recipient and that by punishing him by prison time opens up a First Amendment can of worms, basically, because it takes the onus off of intent and just how the audience perceives speech. Criminalizing misunderstanding is especially dangerous in an age when so much communication occurs on social media, which brings together strangers in an environment that removes much of the context that gives words meaning. And it chills expression by imposing prison time on speakers who do not tailor their views to suit their audience. This court should reverse. Can you tell us how the justices are leaning by what kind of questions they asked? I mean, you talked about Roberts and Sotomayor seeming to have some judicial overlap. I mean, but did you get any sense of of sticking points for the justices? Yeah, I did. You know, here's Justice Sotomayor talking about how she was slightly disturbed that Counterman was convicted without ever getting a chance to sort of talk about what he was actually intending when he wrote all these messages. And that when it's just the audience's viewpoint that's taken into account and and not the messenger's viewpoint, you may get biased decisions about what is threatening speech. If you don't have some sort of subjective intent in a circumstantial case, you're baking in a society, a a sort of bias to whatever that jury thinks might be uh, the community standard. And what's okay for a video game person, player, or a, um, uh, a rapper is a very different thing than would be for a, a non-parent rapper. <laughs> and just to kind of parse that a little, there are more cases of persecution of free speech from people with objectionable opinions, as you might know, Ryan, or minority religious groups, because the quote-unquote regular person may view that as scary. And she's kind of worried about that hmm. as a standard. Yeah, really at the heart of this case is the question of intent versus impact. I want to say you can learn much more about how the singer-songwriter Coles Whalen was impacted by this experience 
at CPR.org, where there is a conversation from earlier this week. Uh, What else might you say about the justice's reaction? You know, on the other side of the aisle, you know, so politically is Chief Justice John Roberts. I will say that he and some of the other more conservative justices, including also Neil Gorsuch, took issue with the decision to convict Counterman purely for what he wrote in messages to Whalen. Here's kind of a lively exchange between Chief Justice Roberts and Attorney General Weiser. Here's one of the statements for which he was convicted. Staying in cyber life is going to kill you. Come out for coffee. You have my number. In what way is that threatening, almost regardless of the tone? When it's put into the context, Mr. Chief Justice, what is being said here is if you don't come out for coffee with me, bad things are going to happen to you. There's others. Well, this is, I'm sorry, this isn't remotely like that. It says staying in cyber life is going to kill you. I, I can't promise I haven't said that. Come out. <laughs> Come, come out come out for coffee. You have my number. The context- I think that might sound solicitous of the person's de- development. I mean, if, if we're talking just about what the statements are, how is that, what tone would you use in saying that that would make it threatening? Many stalking situations has someone who believes they're entitled to the attention and the affection of a victim. Victims of stalking routinely phase scores and scores. Here, hundreds and hundreds of unwanted, invasive engagements from somebody. And the consequence in stalking cases is if you don't give me what I want, I can turn violent. And that indeed does happen. Okay, say this in a threatening way. One of the things he was convicted of, it was an image of liquor bottles, and there was a caption, a guy's version of edible arrangements. So again- Say say that in a threatening way. So the threat here is when you put them all together. When you take one of these out of context or put it into a different context, it means something different. But here, she cut him off on Facebook Messenger four to eight times. She got really up to a thousand messages over a couple of years. She was subject to this torrent of activity that was objectively terrifying to her and would be to any reasonable person in that position. And she was helpless and she could have seen him at a concert and he could have harmed her and she was then afraid to pursue her craft. You know, I just want to make a really quick note about this exchange, which I found really interesting because I did interview Coles Whalen less than two weeks ago, and she expressed fear about this type of exchange, interestingly. She mm-hmm. said, I know they're going to take these messages and they're going to take one out and then another out and say, how is this threatening or how is that threatening? But the lived experience overall was completely terrifying to me. That's what she said to me. And interestingly, that's what Weiser was saying too. Weiser is saying context matters here. You know, you could just say, oh, well, how is a picture with beer bottles scary? And it's like, it's scary because in the context of thousands and thousands of messages, she felt like she was in danger. And she decided not to go to Washington for the case. And, you know, the Supreme Court reviews the record, right? It doesn't hear from witnesses. But how how did her experience play into the arguments? Yeah, you know, it wasn't 100 percent about her. Obviously, the Supreme Court takes up cases because they want to settle larger debates about American law, not necessarily take up some lower court or county court decision to put someone in prison or not. But it did strike me that Weiser, in defending the state's conviction of countermen in this case, 
cued very closely to the victim side of the story. And he talked at length about the rising threats of domestic violence and how terrifying that all is. Requiring specific intent in cases of threatening stalkers would immunize stalkers who are untethered from reality. It would also allow devious stalkers to escape accountability by insisting that they meant nothing by their harmful statements. This matters because threats made by stalkers terrorize victims, and for good reason. 90% of actual or attempted domestic violence murder cases begin with stalking. You know, I think that there are two types of Supreme Court decisions, Allison. Ones that overturn massive amounts of case law. And then there mm-hmm. are decisions that are, they feel more surgical. You know, it's it's a little carve out of law or a tweak. Is there some sense of where this ruling is headed? Not really. (laughs) To quote another reporter I heard talking today, one I respect deeply, the Supreme Court can do whatever it wants on any given day. Um, You know, there are a number of things they could do. They could do nothing and keep this conviction intact. And that would keep all the various state laws in the country intact that have varying standards on what's threatening speech and what isn't. Hmm. Something like 21 states have laws that require that the speaker intended the speech to be threatening. Colorado is not one of those. They could require a, quote, reckless standard, which is way higher than Colorado's standard now. And that that is that someone recklessly disregarded someone's life in making speech. They could remand it back to the state court of appeals with that standard. And then Weiser would have to go there and perhaps prove that Counterman was reckless. You know, I do think they will do something that will take into account the speaker or the messenger's intent, no matter what. But I don't know what form other than that. What is there to lose on either side? It's a good question. Mr. Elwood and the Alliance Defending Freedom and the ACLU and a number of other free speech groups would argue that free speech and America's healthy discourse is at stake right now if the Supreme Court keeps this decision intact. And I think Weiser would argue that that's a little hyperbole, that victims and people in Colorado and other states would be less safe if the high court made it a bigger burden to prove someone was threatening. This is subtle, but are you saying the ACLU and the Alliance Defending Freedom are on the same side of this case? They are. Isn't that oh. interesting? It's uh, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. You, you spoke with Phil Weiser after oral arguments. What did you glean? I, I think one thing he said is, you know, this sort of argument that healthy discourse in America is at stake here, he feels is a little overblown. There's been no proof that free speech is at risk in Colorado for jailing people like Mr. Counterman, that he doesn't think that this is healthy speech or valuable discourse. And I don't think he thinks anything is in danger there. When would we expect a decision this summer, right? Yeah, I mean, they'll need to write it and such. So I don't expect anything super soon, but this term wraps in June. So it'll come out in the next eight or so weeks. Allison, thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan. CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry speaking from Washington, D.C. with Ryan Warner. On Wednesday, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments about a Colorado case that weighs free speech versus state stalking laws. When we come back, a Colorado filmmaker documents the Peace Corps then and now. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. It peaks at just 11,000 feet, but as the largest flat-top mountain in the world, it certainly lives up to its name, Grand Mesa. 
broad and wide, Grand Mesa is capped by a layer of uneroded basalt that dates back to volcanic eruptions 10 million years ago. Rising tall over the dry, high desert, it's graced with hundreds of lakes and home to multitudes of trout, bear, cougars, elk, deer, and according to Ute legend, thunderbirds, whose mighty wings could whip up ferocious storms. After a massive and deadly mudslide on Grand Mesa in 2014, one witness described a sound like a big clap of thunder. And on the western face of Grand Mesa, there's a rock formation that does look like a thunderbird. A reminder that others have called Grand Mesa by another name, Thunder Mountain. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of National Jewish Health. Breathing science is life. It was the early 1960s and President John F. Kennedy was looking for volunteers. He wanted Americans, especially young Americans, to go overseas, to live in other countries, to serve the people there, and to learn from them. President Kennedy called it the Peace Corps. Here he is in a recruitment video from the Oval Office. The willingness of all Americans, men and women, young and old, to serve in the Peace Corps, to serve in all parts of the world, serve at little pay, to do jobs that uh, most of them have never done before, is one of the most encouraging manifestations of the American spirit that this country has seen in many years. The Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged, our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. In the decades since, American volunteers have indeed spread across the world pitching in on daily tasks in small villages or sometimes helping with big crises. But the Peace Corps has had its ups and downs, most recently having to bring all of its workers home for two years due to the pandemic. Denver filmmaker Alana DeJoseph served in Mali in West Africa from 1992 to 1994. Her documentary, A Towering Task, the story of the Peace Corps, premieres on Rocky Mountain PBS tonight. Alana, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Chandra. John F. Kennedy's administration was new and pretty much anything looked like it was possible. Even what was then the dream of sending people to the moon. It seems like the Peace Corps kind of caught the mood of the moment. What were those early days like after it was established? It was exciting. There was glamour around the Peace Corps. Everybody wanted to somehow be involved with the Peace Corps. It wasn't just the big talk around town in Washington, D.C., the entire country was excited about this new idea. And Sergeant Shriver, John F. Kennedy's brother-in-law, who was appointed as the first director of the Peace Corps, he rode that wave. He was so thrilled about creating this brand new agency, this brand new concept in how do we relate to the rest of the world, that he pulled people from all over the country, from all kinds of professions, from all kinds of backgrounds. And mm. so he had all these brilliant minds coming together. And there were no limits on who he called in. He had, I think, a basketball star. He had people out of academia. He had people from the nonprofit sector. He just pulled everybody in. And it was so exciting, just a thrilling time, a very hopeful time. Yeah, I can see the excitement in your voice when you talk about it. I really get that sense of the excitement that was there. So there were skeptics of the idea early on. What were their arguments? Well, the Foreign Service establishment especially was very concerned because they were worried that these would be untrained young people that would be 
not sensitive to the diplomatic efforts going on around the world. And so Mm. they were afraid that uh, these young volunteers would be tripping over the rules, would be offending different cultures, would be getting Americans into trouble all around the world. And in many ways, the opposite happened. The volunteers and a lot of contemporary volunteers you talk to, they find themselves out there in the field, far from the capitals usually, really getting to know the cultures of the different countries. And they come back to the capital for training or for whatever needs um, they have. And they will look at the foreign service establishment saying, you don't know what's going on in the country because you people don't really leave the capital all that much. And we're the ones who are out in the field. So it's so interesting to see what concerns were out there. And then, of course, the various countries around the world were not sure what this Peace Corps thing was going to be. Of course, it's a political gesture when... You have Sergeant Shriver showing up in your country saying, hey, we invented this new thing. We've got the Peace Corps. Can we send you some volunteers? Mm. The answer isn't necessarily always, yes, absolutely, we need volunteers. But it's the, okay, the brother-in-law of the U.S. president is asking me. So how is it handled? Is it really something that the country needs or is it something that is being invited for diplomatic reasons. It's not always that clear cut. So in India, when Sergeant Shriver showed up, the response was very clear. It was the, oh, yes, send us your young people. They have much to learn from us, Mm. which just was so insightful right away from the beginning, realizing that the Peace Corps was not going to be America, you know, neocolonialism, white saviorism heading around the world, sharing this wisdom, but really more learning humility, learning to listen, connecting on a people-to-people level, and appreciating the fact that we oftentimes know very little and have so much to learn from the rest of the world. Well, I'm going to ask you about that savior idea a little bit later, but what sparked this big idea of sending American volunteers overseas? John F. Kennedy had a very international mindset from the beginning. So Mm. he was very interested in connecting on more diplomatic levels and less on a war level or resource or transactional level. And I understand he actually mentioned it and made a campaign promise, essentially, to create this. Yes. So so it wasn't purely his idea. I don't want to misstate this. He was the one who made it a reality. Hubert Humphrey had already mentioned the Peace Corps. There was grew out of this notion of the point four program of engaging with economic development with other countries. Mm-hmm. And there were all kinds of other efforts going on in some other countries. So Canada had something going on. Great Britain had something going on. Australia had something going on already where they were sending volunteers to other countries to work with other cultures. What made Peace Corps very unique in many ways. And it continues to be one of the only programs that has such a balance in its philosophy between cultural exchange and economic development. Hmm. So Peace Corps' mission is world peace and friendship. It's a giant umbrella and it's very nebulous and it's hard to pin down what that really means. But it says it wants to achieve this mission through three goals. And the first goal is to send trained people to other countries that request them. So this is capacity building. This is what we kind of see as traditional economic development. But then goal two is for other cultures to get to know Americans. And goal three is for Americans to get to know other cultures. So two-thirds of the mission are about cultural exchange. And A lot of development agencies or a lot of countries that formed organizations similar to the Peace Corps over the years drifted more and more towards just focusing on economic development, just the 
digging wells, the mm-hmm. building bridges, the teaching in the schools. And the Peace Corps has held fast to this even balance or somewhat even balance between cultural exchange and economic development. And anybody who studied any kind of economic development over the years knows it's fraught with problems. There are so many projects that do more damage than good or that are really successful for a couple of years and then they disappear. Mm. Um, The cultural exchange part is something that lasts forever. For me, for example, I was in Mali in West Africa from 92 to 94. Whenever I see a TV program or, you know, nobody opens newspapers anymore, but when I scroll (laughs) through my phone newspaper in the media industry, (laughs) exactly. When I see Mali mentioned, I, I have a completely different focus on it. And I get very frustrated when I hear people talk about Africa like it's a country because I was there and I was in a very specific country and Malians would have been very upset if you had confused them with Ghanaians or with Senegalese or or Ghanaians or and um but yet it happens all the time and and that's I think where the the strength of the Peace Corps really lies because volunteers are there for two years. Another thing that is pretty unique about the Peace Corps, you don't have us Americans going overseas for extended amounts of times like that, other than in the foreign service. As you mentioned you were assigned to Mali. What did you go in planning to do and how did that turn out? <laughs> Well, I was 22 when I joined the Peace Corps. I had just graduated from college. I had a degree in business and I had a degree in theater. And so I was put into the small enterprise development sector. I had no illusions that I was going to, you know, develop the heck out of this village as (laughs) many people um, think the Peace Corps volunteer shows up and this is going to fix everything. And very soon it became clear that while they loved having me there, I was a curiosity. I did things differently than everybody else. It was kind of neat to watch me kind of the way you would have your local TV programming. I was I was the reality TV for, for my village. <laughs> um, there wasn't really an understanding of how I could possibly help. And it took a long time. It took pretty much all two years for me to get to know the people well enough, to gain the trust enough that everybody felt comfortable to express to me what they actually needed. So I ended up um, teaching some English. I taught some geography. I worked with a guy who ran a small motorcycle shop, and um, we were working on accounting. The tricky part there was that he had a large family, as many people in Mali do, and he was very avoidant to write down any of his finances because he, he was illiterate, but he wanted me to teach him to read and write, but he didn't want to write down his finances, which at first was a little puzzling to me because I, of course, was the small enterprise development advisor. I was like, <laughs> OK, so let's let's do the small enterprise development. And he said, no, 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 I want to read and write, but I can't write this down because if I write this down, my entire family will descend upon me and they will all request money from me. And this is a culture where we share everything. And so I won't have a choice. I will have to give them the money and then my business will go under because I will not have any funding. So we creatively worked on finance and how, you know, how you plan it in your head. And he was very smart. He didn't need me to teach him how to run his business. He he knew that very well. But we could talk about some, some concepts that if it were written down, this is how we would structure it. And that helped him kind of plan a little bit in his business. Not earth shattering, but I made a lifelong friend out of it. Um, and then I also worked with a women's group that did pottery. And that was that was just inspiring to get to spend time with them and the generosity of spirit they had whenever I would come to visit. They would give me some food. They would give me water. It was so welcoming. 
and I hope I got to share a little bit of information. I would I was not a potter going into this, but I would dash back to Bamako to the capital and find any books I could find on pottery and tell them what I saw in there. And then they would tell me what they already knew or what might be helpful for them. And it helped us connect more than anything else. I'm not sure it did much for their pottery. Uh, they they already knew what to do. <laughs> well, let's talk on a larger scale about some of the projects that the Peace Corps has been involved in that are featured in the documentary. For instance, the Ebola crisis. What happened there? So Ebola struck West Africa, and it was incredibly challenging because, of course, for Peace Corps, they are in charge of all these volunteers' safety as well as their work that they do in the country. And the danger of a volunteer getting exposed and dying of Ebola was a big concern. So all volunteers were evacuated. At the same time, Peace Corps also realized its responsibility to that country. So they decided to keep all the staff, including the American staff. So where that became incredibly helpful was when you had the larger health organizations coming into the country in order to do the education, in order to fight this Ebola crisis, they came in with their spacesuits. You know, they came in with their with their hazmat suits. They had all this equipment. And at the same time, they were used to working in the capital. And it was the Peace Corps staff that had all these connections to these rural towns. And they knew how to talk to everybody there. They had very close relationships over all these years. So it was Peace Corps staff that then helped the CDC guys to connect to people out in the rural villages and communicate with them so they wouldn't be afraid. Because, of course, there was a lot of fear when when these people from these rich countries are coming in with all this gear and... I live in my village here and there's somebody really sick. Do I want to turn over my loved one who's really sick to somebody in a spacesuit? They're not spacesuits, hazmat suits. But anyway, but they, it they looks look like intimidating. Suit, yes. yeah. There's a lot of sentiment out there that the very idea of the Peace Corps sort of hinges on this concept of a savior complex. This idea that Americans can come in and somehow sort of change the world just by their presence. What are your thoughts about that? I think it's important to always think about that. I think whether this is uh, Americans coming into other countries, whether this is me telling my neighbor how they should be planting their yard, it really is this whole concept of humility. It's this notion of I can't walk in there assuming that I know what the solution is for you. And I think Peace Corps has always... From the beginning, that was part of the training. It was this whole notion of you're there for two years because you're not going to know anything when you go in there. We can train you up on everything we know, but every community is different. So, you know, I, I think if you if you imagined somebody from another country come to your neighborhood in Colorado and they move in and it's this young bright-eyed, bushy-tailed person says, hey, I'm here to help. And they move in. They say, come over to my house if you have any questions, if I can help you in any way. How's, how long is it going to take us as an average American to share the real concerns that we have, the real problems we have? How soon are we going to tell them that we have an argument with our neighbor across the street and that's why we don't shovel their snow or what, whatever <laughs> the small little problems are that are going on? So it's so important to understand that it takes humility in the first place. And I think for Peace Corps volunteers, when they're out at their site, they think a lot about that. I know for the two years I was there, I was so worried. I always thought, I, I hope I do more good than harm. I hope I don't do anything wrong. I have to communicate with people. I have to learn to listen, which helps. Of course, it doesn't protect against everything because we always and everybody at all times deals with 
the knowledge that you have at the time, the best knowledge you have at the time. So there are examples of Americans as Peace Corps volunteers going overseas teaching concepts that later proved to be not the right concepts. So, in, for example, in the film, we have Taylor Hackford, RPCV, he was in Bolivia, and he was an agriculture volunteer. And so it was about planting crops that would be helpful and sustainable. But he was there in the late 60s, early 70s, and he said he was reading Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, and he was reading about pesticides, and mm. he was reading about malathion. And then he re- realized that he had just put this pesticide in the ground in Bolivia. And it's so important to pay attention to these mistakes that we make. And everybody's going to make mistakes whenever they interact with anybody, really, not just whether you travel overseas or whether it's your neighbor. When we first started doing A Towering Task, the documentary, we had this one quote from Aboriginal activist Alilla Watson that we used as our guidepost. She said, if you've come to help, you're wasting your time. If you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Hmm. And to me, that was the whole notion of the Peace Corps. It's this, this is not about one person helping another because they have a power differential or a knowledge differential. It's about the realization that in a time of climate change, in a time of pandemics, in a time of mass migration, we are all connected. And if we don't work together, we're in deep trouble. And so at first we thought, how do we get this quote of Lilla Watson's into the documentary? She has nothing to do with the Peace Corps. She's from Australia. (laughs) Peace Corps has never gone to Australia. And it wasn't until I listened to the John F. Kennedy inaugural speech, the famous quote that everybody can recite, the ask not what your country will do for you, Mm. ask what you can do for your country, quote. And I didn't stop the video there. I let it play. And it said, citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the liberation of man. Mm. And I thought, well, that's basically what Lilla Watson said. It was the liberation of man. You know, if, if your liberation is bound up with mine, it's the same concept. We have to work together. So you found that in. You found that in. Now, as I mentioned, the Peace Corps' popularity has kind of ebbed and flowed over the years. Why do you think that's happened? I think there's a general trend, unfortunately, now that national service is not front and center anymore the way it used to be. So in the 60s, a lot of the founders of the Peace Corps, they had come straight out of World War II. They were very aware what war is. And so for them, when they said world peace, it wasn't this lofty kumbaya kind of concept. It was a very tangible notion. And service was important to them. It meant a lot. It was this whole notion of community that was very strong then. I think over the years, that concept of of service has been more ebbing than flowing, unfortunately. Um, so I think it's, it's something that we need to bring back and we need to figure out how to do that. I often think about how split our country is and how much good it could do us if we had another Civilian Conservation Corps or Works Project Administration and bring everybody together. But it's also, it's also very dependent on the administration in the White House. Because the Peace Corps is designed to be politically independent. That doesn't mean that it can't sometimes be inched one way or another on the continuum towards more political involvement or less political involvement. And, you know, in our film, we talk a lot about the 80s where uh, the Peace Corps had its longest serving director, Lorette miller Rupi, And the Reagan administration was not terribly supportive of a lot of the social welfare programs. And um, Peace Corps, of course, as kind of a uh, a service program around the world, had a Mm. bit of a bullseye on its back. And so Lorette Rupi 
did a lot in order to make the Peace Corps more palatable to the administration. So when there was conflict going on in Central America, they ramped up Peace Corps volunteers in Central America. And the understanding was the, okay, so we have conflict, but let's send in these citizen diplomats as well. Let's see whether we can balance this out in some way. So the way the Peace Corps is seen depends and, and changes over time. And then Of course, the more politically independent the Peace Corps is, I think the easier it is to argue for the Peace Corps as as an institution. Is it more difficult to recruit these days? It's a lot more difficult to recruit these days. You know, back in the 60s when it was founded, there were, what, how many TV stations at the time? Those public service announcements, the toughest job you'll ever love. Everybody had seen them. People could quote them to each other. Yeah. Now to break through that media landscape is incredibly difficult. And the choices to go overseas for somebody in their early 20s, there are many more choices in how you can do that. I would argue there's no other choice that allows you to stay for two years supported by the U.S. government. But there are many other service learning projects you can do that are some weeks long or months long. And that that makes it harder. People have more options. At the same time, also, I would say there are economic challenges. We have a lot of students coming out of colleges with student debt, with student loans. And while your student loan gets deferred while you're in the Peace Corps, you then still have to deal with that when you come back. And it's Mm. difficult for people to take those two years where they don't really make an income other than their stipend to just take off and not further their career necessarily. Peace Corps volunteers from around the world were evacuated when the COVID pandemic hit in 2020. Let's hear from a volunteer featured in your documentary who had to come home with only a day's notice. The thing that that's kept me up and still does is just the thought of betrayal. Like, I betrayed that trust. Wow, what is your reaction to that? Yeah, I agree with that. It's this inner tension that I think every Peace Corps volunteer has, whether you get evacuated or whether... You even leave after the two years this notion that you always have a ticket out of there. And and this is not a small feat. This was nearly 7,000 Peace Corps volunteers evacuated when the pandemic hit. Absolutely. And the question was, should Peace Corps have stayed there? Because there, you can always argue, you are there to work together with these people. What does anybody think of you if you leave when the going gets tough? And what does that mean? And so what I heard from the Peace Corps, the choice... The reason they evacuated everybody was because the airports were shutting down. And they were afraid that if somebody has a serious health emergency or has some serious issue where they need to leave the country, that they wouldn't be able to leave the country. So that Mm. flexibility was going away. So it was a little different. And that was not unreasonable at that time. There was a lot of uncertainty. Um, I'm sure people were worried about their own families and, you know, back in the States. And I mean, it was just a lot of confusion at that time. Absolutely. And But that doesn't make it emotionally any easier, right? Because you still, this is your family overseas. So I have my, you know, birth family uh, here in America, but I also have my Malian family, the people that took me in and took care of me for two years. And I still felt like I was betraying them a little bit when I left after two years because I felt like we were just gaining trust with each other. And here I have my easy ticket out of here. And it was a lot harder back in the early 90s. We couldn't just, you know, friend each other on Facebook or, you know, (laughs) uh, FaceTime each other. Volunteers now stay in much closer contact with the communities where they've served, which is great. But it still feels like betrayal every time. Now, only 1,200 are now back in the field since this evacuation due to COVID. 
What's it going to take to bring the Peace Corps back to where it was, say, three years ago or just to restore it to the glory days? It's going to take an enormous effort. I think we should never take for granted how hard it was to start the Peace Corps in the first place. And that was a time when all the odds were in the in the favor of the Peace Corps. They had to work so incredibly hard to make that happen. And there was so much political machination to get the votes, to get the Peace Corps Act passed and, and to make sure this agency wouldn't you know, be doomed after the first year because of some scandal or whatever. There was an incredible work put into starting an entire government agency. They started it within six weeks wow. from Sergeant Shriver being told by JFK, OK, we're going to do this thing. Got to be a record for government <laughs> action. <laughs> right? So this is this precious thing that we have in our government that a lot of people aren't even aware of that could disappear on us if we're not careful. And so rebuilding will take years. It will take a lot of work. Uh, the countries out there, they're requesting Peace Corps volunteers. Most countries overseas have had wonderful experiences with Peace Corps volunteers. It's us here in America who are forgetting that the Peace Corps exists. And so it'll take all of us to look at who, who would make a good Peace Corps volunteer. It'll take more of us to apply. And, it, you know, don't get me wrong, it's not just young people. Peace Corps is looking for people in their retirement age, really the whole spectrum, anything from right out of college to, you know, you have sold your house, you're ready to move into the retirement community, but you're ready for two more years overseas somewhere. Um, so we need to apply. We need to understand our civic duty as global citizens and, and apply. It takes the political will. There is one return Peace Corps volunteer in Congress right now, John Garamendi. There, for a while, there were six. Um, there might have been higher numbers than that, but there's not a lot of advocacy for the Peace Corps in Congress. So that's important, the, the understanding of what does this organization even do, because most of what Peace Corps does is overseas, so we don't see it here in America. Well, thank you, Alana. Thanks for joining us. Chandra, thanks so much for having me. Denver filmmaker Alana DeJoseph served in the Peace Corps in Mali, West Africa, from 1992 to 1994. Her documentary, A Towering Task, The Story of the Peace Corps, premieres tonight on Rocky Mountain PBS. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.